Our text this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 18, and it's not only a mere five verses. The five verses or the five verses that we're going to focus in for this morning's message and hone in on these, but the story of Jonathan and David's friendship goes, it begins here in 1 Samuel chapter 18 until their parting in 1 Samuel 23. We don't believe it to have been a very long friendship as far as physical time, but it was a very, very deep and intimate friendship. It was a level of friendship that we this morning would be encouraged to go after. To not only find a spiritual friendship with another person that we can be a spiritual friend, but find in that person a friend for our soul in our journey that we make through this life. 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 through 5. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the Lord of the Rings, there's a very pivotal moment. In the elfin town or kingdom of Rivendell, the king of the elves, Elrond, has gathered to him a council. And this council has a huge decision to make. What to do with the ring? There is an evil king force, Sauron, and he is pursuing this ring that is called a ruling ring. If he can receive or or get this ring for himself, then he'll be able to control all of the kingdom. And so what do they do with this ring? And they finally decide that because this ring is so awesome and so powerful and also so terrible, for it was originally designed by Sauron, so it's filled with trickery and evil and cruelty, but it is so powerful that the one that wears it would be apt to work cruelty. So they can't wield its power. So this council decides that it must be destroyed. And the only way you can destroy this ring is by to throw it into this fiery volcano. And the only way that you can get to the fiery volcano is to go to the land of Mordor. You've got to go through all of this evil and risk death in order to throw the ring into the fire. And there's one armorless, small in stature, humble, rural, shire-living hobbit named Frodo 
who says, I'll take it, but I do not know the way. And Elrond looks with all of his force of men around him, and he says, I believe this is your destiny. You must take this ring. You must go on this journey. And because it was a secret council, all the the members have already been named, but out of the corner of a room, a little man, another hobbit, has snuck into the room. He's snuck into this secret council, and he comes out from the corner. And his name name is Sam Ganji, and he used to be Frodo's gardener. And he leaps out, and he says, Master Elrond, Please, you can't send him alone. You can't send him on this journey alone. And Elrond looks at him and he says, No, indeed. No, indeed. It seems that I would not be able to send him alone even if I desired it. For you are his friend. And you've made your way into this council. So I'm sure that you will make your way to follow him. He says, Sam, you can go with him. And then Sam looks at Frodo, and he says, what a pickle we have fallen into. And the rest of the story is about the journey of these two, and they have other companions that are a part of their team in this long and arduous journey. And the personal transformations that begin to take place, and the feats that they accomplish, all take place based on, as the wizard Gandalf would say, more on the strength of their friendship than on the basis of human or mere wisdom. This morning, I want to encourage you to prayerfully consider giving your whole self to another person for the whole journey of their life. And praying that somebody will give their whole self to your whole journey in your life. And I'll tell you a little more as we go along about what this whole self looks like, but it looks a lot different than most of our superficial friendships reflect. And because this type of friendship looks so different, you're very apt to think that it's a myth. You're very apt to think that it's like Bigfoot. Very rarely seen, and if someone sees it, you're suspicious and don't believe it. But there is, and many in this room this morning have experienced a whole self who is in For the whole journey. And they are those in this room. Who are and have put their whole self. In another person's life. For the whole journey of their life. And the shortcut to the gospel is. Is that if you're a Christian this morning. You're experiencing. You're experiencing a friendship. With Jesus. Such that you're experiencing. That his whole self is in our whole life for the whole journey of change and transformation that we'll experience in this life. And the friendship is eternal, and it doesn't end. 
I want you to see four things, and this is on your outline, but I want you to see four things as we look to the text this morning. And the first thing that I want you to see are that spiritual friends look in the same direction. We're told here in verse 1 that when Jonathan, looking at David, and hearing him finish speaking, that his soul was knit to David. And the word there is also used to mean chained to something, literally chained to something. And so for those of you that knit, uh, and you can see Mary Lucas for this, and others are, can give you skills in this department, men, don't be afraid uh, to knit. Uh, my dad wanted to learn how to tat, which is very fine knitting. And the basis, that got, the thing that got him started was, is that it's one loop that's connected to another loop until it makes one whole unit. But it's, it's, it's taking fabric or yarn or thread and, and knitting it so together that by the loops and by the chains, they become one. Two become one. And that's what took place at this moment. Now, if you go back to 1 Samuel 17, I want to tell you that Jonathan was prompted by a look. It began with a look at David, and then he's listening to David answer his father Saul's question. A quick recap from last week. David slew a giant. He slew Goliath. He became the representative of all the people. He became Jesus to us. He went against the devil. He went against death. He went against judgment against us. He went against the bondage of eternal captivity. Jesus went against all of that and on the cross became a victor. David risked his life. Jesus lost his life. David risked his life to save all of Israel, and he won. And then at the end of the battle, humble David as a shepherd, not having nothing but a, a sling and a, and a bag full of stones, lifted the great sword of Goliath, and he chopped off, of his, chopped off his head. And then, with that head still in his hand, he appears before Saul. Now, get this, would you? Jonathan and all of Saul's men, his bodyguards, his generals, and all of their armament are standing there, and here is a ruddy-looking young shepherd boy with a giant's head in his hand saying, Yeah? yeah do, you, do you want to talk to me? Little old me? And Jonathan listening to David say, yeah, I'm, I'm the son of Jesse. You remember and recall the story, he was the eighth son. He wasn't even called in when Samuel anointed the future king. He was out in the field. He was the run of the bunch. So this little runny shepherd who's just slain the enemy of Israel, standing there with a bloody head, is looked upon by Jonathan. Back in 1 Samuel 14, back in 1 Samuel 14, verse 6, we read about the heart of Jonathan. You see, prior to David, Israel's champion was Jonathan. Jonathan, like David, had a heart 
to protect Israel, to be to fight for Israel, and to fight and to stand for God rather than the idols of the uncircumcised Philistines. We read these words that on one occasion Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Jonathan, hand over hand, climbed the face of a cliff at the taunts of the Philistine. Oh, you little Israelite, come on up here and we'll show you what for. He and his servant climb the cliff and they slay in hand-to-hand combat over 20 Philistines. Fast forward. Here is Jonathan with all of these generals. And there's David. And Jonathan looks at him with the head of Goliath in his hand. He says, we're kindred spirits. We're fighters. We love Israel. We love God. We don't stand still when the uncircumcised idolaters taunt our God, belittle our people, and would hold us captive. There was nothing in common between Jonathan. Not social status, not wealth, not battle training. There was no... He was in the palace. David was in the sheep pen. But there was everything together in the heart. Soul mates... Kindred spirits, they share looking in the same direction. It's not simply having things in common, it's intentionality. Do you have the same intent? C.S. Lewis puts it well this way. C.S. Lewis says, Friends are not primarily absorbed in each other. It is when they are doing things together that friendship springs up. Painting. Sailing ships, praying, philosophizing, fighting shoulder to shoulder. Friends look in the same direction. Lovers look at each other. That is, in opposite directions. Many of us in our friendships, we settle for intimacy, but we don't settle we don't, we don't go for the, the meat of finding friendships that are going in the same direction, that are looking in the same direction, that are on the same journey we're on. So that like hikers, our soul friend is a companion who joins us in this hike and we're going after it together. And I look to my companion and I say, you're in it with me and I'm in it with you. And our hearts become one. And the Lord, I count that friend as a gift. I have these friends. And I don't count them up as anything other than God choosing them to put them in my life. To assist me in my journey. When I'm weak, they are strong. That they are with me and I'm not alone. My journey becomes our journey. But too many times we'll settle 
for different levels of intimacy. We'll settle for sexual intimacy. Sexual intimacy is great inside the bounds of a marriage. But sexual intimacy outside of the bounds of marriage, many times we find that there's still, it's not meeting. It's not assisting me on my journey. It's not, it's not, it's a compromise. It's not meat for my heart and for my soul. It doesn't take care of my soul. Vocational intimacy. We can have vocational intimacy with our workmates. We can have recreational intimacy with the fans of our sa- the same ball team. We can have all sorts of levels of intimacy. But those are all like little small or short side roads. But on the big journey we call life, do you have a soul or a spiritual friend? Well, you'll you'll find that your soul is knit to those that are looking in the same direction that you're looking. Secondly, we find here that spiritual friends love selflessly. Love selflessly. In 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, Saul, Saul is after David. Saul has the, he has the king of Israel. He is seeing that the hearts of the people are going after David. And he is filled with jealousy that is prompted by his envy. He wants those praises. He wants those successes. Also, he wants his name, the house of Saul, to continue in the kingdom of Israel. So Jonathan must be the prince. Jonathan must succeed him. Jonathan loves David. Jonathan, his soul, as we read earlier, is knit with David. Saul is not. Saul wants to take him out. Jonathan would have nothing to do with it. Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. He's stating what Jonathan already knows. That as long as David breathes, David is moving closer to take the very throne that Saul would have promised to Jonathan, his firstborn son, the crown prince. But when Jonathan looks at David, he doesn't see someone that he envies his successes. And have you ever thought about that as being a a mark of friendship? That when your friend, here's a, a, a true friendship. You can, your friend can have a tremendous success and you don't envy them. You're the first to throw the party and celebrate. You don't begrudge them. You don't speak against them. You celebrate with them. Jonathan was able to look at David's successes and not fear them, not envy them, not be jealous of them, but to celebrate them. And elsewhere, he will defend him. We find 
here in verse 4 of chapter 18 that Jonathan laid down three things. He laid down a robe, a tunic, and a sword. The giving him of his robe. Now remember, David is standing there with the bloody head of Goliath and he's standing in a shepherd's garb as a young boy. Very humbled in the midst of those. And here is Jonathan, the crown prince, a general in his own right, and he takes off his royal robe to cover David, to honor him. He takes off his tunic. That would have been the the military leather garb that would have protected him. So he's basically putting a, a pin, a medal on him with that, saying, you're the true warrior, you're the true fighter. We were huddled back in our tents. Not even Jonathan went after Goliath that day. That's a side row sermon in itself. But you're the one that I would honor. I would raise to military might. And then he gave his sword. He laid aside his only means of self-defense. That's significant. That he says, I give you everything. I've given you my royalty. I'm giving you my military uh, might. And I'm giving you my sword. I will follow you. I want to honor you. I want to lift you up. I want to make you strong. I want to give you a weapon. I want to give you protection. I want to give you honor. It's about you. We're, did you know I wrote a book? Uh, don't rush, rush to Barnes & Noble to get the book that I wrote. Uh, there are only three copies. And... Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando has two of them. So I have one copy. And the one book that I wrote in my life was about mentoring. It was about mentoring church planters, how to plant churches, and how to build a team of church planters and pour into their life and to keep them encouraged that they might be successful. And one of the questions that I answered was, is how does, how does a mentor... How does a mentoree, a young man, know that he's found a mentor? Somebody that can groom him and strengthen him and encourage him to succeed in the ministry of church planting. And one of the things, one of the marks were, is that the mentor sees the relationship as not about him and all about the mentoree. Not about making the mentor look good, but making the mentoree look good. Not about the mentor's success He's had them, but about making the mentoree successful. And that's what Jonathan does in this relationship. A spiritual friend loves the other so much that they don't see them as a tool. As a tool. Look at your friendships. How many of your friendships give back? They at least reciprocate. You give, they give. You you communicate, they communicate. You host, they host. You buy, they buy. Or you have a friend who say, now that friend, she's a hammer. Boy, I'll tell you what, she's a gal that I've got this situation. I need to, I need to, it's a, a, a moment of conflict at work. I need to get my friend who's a hammer and talk to her and say, how do you confront people? 
Well, here's how you, here's how you nail the nail down. All right, man, you're such a good friend, and you put that friend in your tool belt. That, we all have those friendships, but those friendships are called utilitarian friendships. I am friends with people who bring something to me. And yes, I have friends that I'm their tool. You know, I'm the Bible answer man or whatever, you know. But that's not what we're talking about this morning. What we're talking about is a deeper friendship. A spiritual friendship says, you're not a tool for me. I'm not going to look at you as a tool for my utility belt. I'm all in for you. My whole self, my time, perhaps my money, my space, my life, my whole self is in for the whole journey. My whole self, all of me, I'm not holding back such as I am. Not much, but I'm there. I'm there for the whole journey. That's what Jonathan was to David. And then we see that spiritual friends live to protect and provide. A great instance of this protection comes up in 1 Samuel chapter 19, verse 4. Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. What what does it look like to speak well of your friends, particularly when they're not there? You know how I can tell an indication of a real friendship, spiritual friendship? is when the other person is not around and some bit of criticism or gossip begins to take place and that person steps up and says, you don't know them like I do. They are a wonderful, wonderful soul. They, they They are true blue. You don't know them like I do. Or you don't know what they're going through, but I assure you that your perceptions right now are incorrect about them. They defend the person when they're not there. Wouldn't we all love to have somebody like that that's always watching our back, particularly when others in our absence would gossip about us? Or a true friend is one that in the presence of others when we're attacked, They step in. Again, time doesn't permit me this morning, but I know that one of the things I see right now, particularly with young adults and conversation, is sarcasm. Sarcasm to the degree... In in our community of friendship, it's as if it's the lingua franca. It's the, the language, the common language. Oh, here comes... Here comes Billy. Oh, hey, man. Uh, what? Sleep, sleep a little late today? It's harmless, right? Uh, maybe. Because it could be that it's a dig. It's, it's a way to, to welcome somebody. Hey, here's Billy. Oh, sleep in, huh? Yeah, you're, you know, what? But how do they, how do they interpret it? Maybe, maybe that's just a, funny way to give an insult or to size people up or to keep them in their place 
it look like if you remove sarcasm from your dialogue with other friends? Just take sarcasm out. Praise them. Hey, Billy, Kane, I'm glad, you, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad it worked out for you to be able to be here. Hope, was everything all right? You're a little bit late, but is everything okay? Great, sit down. But remove sarcasm. Think about it. There, there, there are a number of levels of conversation. And the levels of conversation, there's six levels of conversation. The, level of, the levels of conversation start with cliché. How's the weather? Nice weather that we're having. Then it moves to fact. Wow, this team has never lost. And boy, this, the mechanics of a diesel motor are just amazing over that of a gas motor. Oh, yeah, you know. And you're talking about just factoids. Opinion. It can be religious. It can be cultural. It can be political. But this is what you think about things. What I think about things. Oh, yeah, I think about those things too. But you're keeping the conversation still on the surface level. The next level, emotional, you begin to get beneath the surface. I feel this way. Passion begins to appear. Or, how do you feel about this? Oh, I feel this way. You've gotten beneath the surface. Fifth is transparent. Transparent is where I believe the power of the gospel must be at work. The power of the gospel is such that I can now be real. I can now be my whole self to you. I can be vulnerable to you. I'd like for you to like me, but it's not going to kill me if you don't like me because the gospel says that I'm now a friend of God through Christ. Christ counts me as one of his friends. I have the love of God and experiencing that, I can be more and more real with you and afford you a safe place that you can be real with me in the journey. A whole self in for the whole journey. That's transparent. And then the last one is dialogue. Now this is where the soul begins to speak to the soul. The heart begins to speak to the heart. An example question for dialogue would be, what do you sense that God is up to? Do you see what's happening? In a spiritual friendship, the point is, you, you're, not, you're not leading someone. You're not saying, all right, here's what you got to do. Or here's how I would do it. Or here's what I always do. Do it like me. Do it my way. No, you're trying to dial in and tune into this person. Such that you can say, I want to point the way to God. I want to keep pointing you in this journey to God. Not to me. Remember, friends are looking in the same direction. I'm journeying on in intimacy, growing intimacy with God. Growing transformation with God. And this person, like hopeful to Christian and Pilgrim's Progress, along the way they speak in their journey. Not so much about each other, but about their God and their relationship with their God, encouraging their hearts along the way. 
helping me to tune in to what God is doing by asking a dialogue question like, what do you think God is doing in your life right now? Why do you think this is befalling you? What do you think God thinks about that? What do you think about God in this situation? And not giving the answer, but letting your friend begin to ruminate over that, and all the while you're with them for the whole journey. So you really are moving your friend to be attentive to God and then likewise to respond to God. In 1 Samuel chapter 23, in verses 15 through 17, now this is the last encounter. This is the last encounter between Jonathan and David. David saw that Saul had come out to take his life. And Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horish. Okay, now here's the scene. Saul has his army looking for David who is on the run. And guess who one of his generals at his right hand is? Jonathan. Jonathan is not seeking David's life, but by rights of being the crown prince and the general, he must be at the right side of Saul, who seeks to take David's life. But there comes a point where Jonathan, and I believe at the risk of his own life, earlier there are instances where Saul tried to take his son's life. If he couldn't spear David, he would spear Jonathan. But Jonathan leaves and he meets David in a private place and he strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, do not fear For the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. It's very interesting when it uses that term that he strengthened his hand in God. What would it look like? What would it look like to strengthen another person's hand in God? Maybe we can rephrase it and say, strengthened his grip on God. To come alongside of him and to calm his fears and say, let me remind you, God is with you. God is with you. He's not abandoned you. And God's not changed his plan one bit. You are going to be the king. And my dad is not. To, To speak into his life. And then to call out, as it were, call out his glory. You're going to be a king one day. Man, you're a, you're a beautiful daughter of Christ. You're, you're young, but boy, the Lord loves you. You've got these gifts, and in the hand of God, you have a great destiny. Calling out honor, calling out glory, strengthening them in the hand of God. That is a spiritual friend. And then finally, we read on two different occasions that Jonathan, one of them being in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 41 through 42, Jonathan asked David, verse 42, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and he departed and Jonathan went into the city. 
true friends, spiritual friends, soul friends, in their love relationship, those two hearts becoming one, they want, they long to make vows of commitment to one another. And not only that, but to rededicate themselves, to renew those vows. It's called a covenant. A covenant is a pledge or a promise. It could be between two nations that we will be friends throughout the generation, but certainly our lifetime. It's between a man and a woman, the vows that they take in marriage, where two become one, and saying, I, I pledge you my life, I pledge my life to you, and I take your life in pledge to me for as long as we both shall live. It's a pledge between Abraham, the father of the faith, when he looked to God and said, Despite every evidence around me in this world, I believe in you. And God said, I take that faith and I pledge myself now to be your God. And you shall be my man and your children, they shall be my people. And it says, Abraham was a friend of God. Jonathan looked to David and he said, I want our friendship to be one that will last not only between us, but between our children and our children's children and our children's children's children. And not only that, but he, later on, he'll renew it again, constantly renewing it. I think we need to do that in our human relationships when you find that special relationship with a person that loves your soul and they love the journey that you're on and they want to make you successful. They want to keep you encouraged and they pour themselves into you, even their resources. And then you do that for another person. You want to make bonds to them. But can I tell you the gospel as we prepare to come to this table? The gospel is found in John fifteen fifteen, Easy verse to commit to memory, the street address, 1515, is certainly memorable. Jesus, looking to his disciples, says, No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master are doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I've heard from the Father, I've made known to you. Jesus Christ this morning comes to us and he says, you're not simply my followers. You're not simply dutiful Christians. I look to you and you're my friends. From the beginning of time, Jesus had a friendship with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. He came to earth and died in our place that he might include us in that friendship. That is so cosmic, I can't wrap my head around it. Can you judge it as not heretical that Jesus is your friend? That not only are you his friend, but he is your friend? He likes being with you. He is all in, whole self, for the whole journey with you. And that we actually contribute to his joy by being his friends. And this morning, at this table, 
we renew our vows. We renew our vows again. At this table, we're reminded of both the cost of friendship. He purchased our friendship with God, but also its covenant. This is called the new covenant in my blood. It's the new vow such that by looking at this broken bread and looking at this cup, you see my death in your place, that our friendship will never, never, never end. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would set aside these elements for that purpose, that they would remind us and spur us on of the friendship that we have with you through Christ and spur us on in our friendships to go beyond superficial What would it look like at Two Rivers if we were not simply followers, not simply disciples, not simply students, not simply servants, but we were friends to one another, caring so much that we go beyond the surface that we're a whole self in for the whole journey as we make our journey being transformed into the sons and the daughters until we reach that distant land of heaven. What would it look like if we were a church of such friends to one another? Lord, from this table, equip us and strengthen us by your friendship that we might live that out even as it's played out in our life with you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.